Good morning. I have a couple of pieces of good news to start with, maybe three. Uh, the first one is, if you enjoyed that clip of Chloe hitting her sister in the head with a pacifier, it is on YouTube. I think you just have to search for Revenge of the Pacifier. And the good news is there's a sequel, Revenge of the Pacifier Part 2. So the whole thing is a delight. I encourage you to look at it. The second piece of good news that I haven't told you yet, because it just seemed like it wasn't the right time to, to, to do this all along the last few months, but we did receive the grant for my sabbatical. It was granted. It will take place uh, beginning in May, so thank you for that. Thank you for your prayers for that and your input. And then each month, one more piece of good news, each month we have been uh, giving you a bit of a stewardship update to keep you informed uh, about our financial situation as a congregation here at ECC. And one of the richest places in Scripture that you can go to to kind of consider stewardship is 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It's the same verse we looked at last month, uh, verse 7, but it still has something to say to us. And there the Apostle Paul writes, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I challenged us a couple of months ago to engage in intentional faithfulness. Intentional faithfulness in our giving. In Paul's words, to decide in our hearts what we're going to give and then to follow through on that decision. This morning, most of all, I want to say thank you. Over the past two months, our giving has been so intentional and so faithful that the earlier financial losses that we experienced in this fiscal year since July 1st have now been erased, and we are back on track in our giving. Amen. <clears throat> so we celebrate that, and I give you thanks for that, and I give thanks to God. Uh, this month, uh, let's stay the course. Let's keep up the good work, and let's follow a little bit more of the instruction that the Apostle Paul gives us in that brief verse. Let us seek not to give under compulsion, not to give reluctantly, but to do so cheerfully, because this is something that pleases God. It's a way for us to show gratitude to God for all the blessings that God has given us. And it will, that practice of learning to give joyfully, learning to give cheerfully, will increase our joy and increase our faith. And I believe our awareness of what God is doing. So would you join with me as I just offer a brief word of thanks to God for meeting our needs. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks uh, this day for the way you have in the past always met our needs in our 150th year. Lord, you have met us as a congregation. Uh, we thank you for the last two months where you have stirred the hearts and minds of the people of ECC to give faithfully, to give generously, to give intentionally. We pray that we would use these gifts, Lord, um, with wise stewardship in a way that brings you honor and glory. We pray that you would continue this work in us. And again, Lord, we give you thanks. We ask your blessing on all those who have been sacrificial and intentional in their giving. In Jesus' name, amen. So earlier this year, seems like a decade ago now, earlier this year, um, when the pandemic first started, the first few weeks, Kim and I decided we're going to do a jigsaw puzzle. How many people did a jigsaw puzzle during the pandemic? A few of you, if you're online, tell us you did a jigsaw puzzle and tell us how many pieces. Ours was a thousand pieces. It took us forever, and we finally finished it. And I said, you know, I want to do that again. I want another challenge. Kim was not thrilled about this. I went to, uh, we went to Goodwell, and I found a puzzle there, a thousand-piece puzzle with no picture on the box, no help whatsoever. No kidding. This is it. A thousand pieces, no picture in the box. I thought this would be a great challenge. Kim did not agree. 
So we put it out and we started working on the puzzle. We got the border fixed, right? We got that because of the straight edge pieces. We had that. And then we started to work our way inward to the middle. Just started. And then it was so incredibly frustrating. Every piece looked like every other piece. It was infuriating. We finally gave up. Put it all back in the box. Anybody wants it, it'll be on the front pew at the end of the service. (laughs) And this is sometimes how we approach the Old Testament. Stay with me here. We find it puzzling in places, frustrating at times, even sometimes downright infuriating. Why? Because it's sort of like putting a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle together without a picture on the box. The picture on the box, the lid of the box of our sometimes puzzling Old Testament is Jesus Christ. The picture on the lid of the box of our sometimes puzzling Old Testament is Jesus Christ. That is, while we take absolutely nothing from these more than half of our Bibles, this Old Testament in its context, in its original context, and the meaning it had then, the meaning that it continues to have all by itself for people of the Jewish faith, we take nothing from that. However, we also know that we understand the Bible best as a whole, both Old and New Testaments, one unified story that's trying to tell us something. And we, we are able to do this best, to understand this, this unity, this story, when we look at the Old Testament, when we look at all of it through the lens of Jesus. When we look for Christ, even in the midst of passages that perhaps on the surface seem to have nothing to do with Jesus at all. Ancient scholars did this. Ancient scholars did this. The Apostle Paul does it in the New Testament. Other New Testament authors also do it. Spoiler, even Jesus did it. You're going to hear about that a little bit in next week's sermon. Even Jesus did it. Jesus is the picture on the lid of the puzzle box. He is the lens through which we best understand the whole. He is the plot twist at the end of the movie that makes you reinterpret and rethink everything else you saw before. And we can see this at work in a powerful way this morning in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. So the good news that we celebrate on this second Sunday in the season of Advent is this, that in the coming of Christ, God clears the way, God makes the way, and God becomes the way. In the coming of Jesus Christ, God clears the way, God makes the way, and he becomes the way. He makes a way, and this way for each of us is a way to enter into the kingdom of God, to enter into a relationship with God, and to find our way toward the future that God has planned for us. In the coming of Christ, God clears the way, makes the way, and becomes the way. So by way of an overview, we didn't really do this much last week, but it's, it's good to do it now because of where we are in Isaiah. The first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, largely understood by scholars as the first major section in the book of Isaiah, is uh, the prophet, uh, God through the prophet, warning the people, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, to, uh, to shape up, or judgment is on its way. And in particular, they're supposed to stop putting their trust in secular uh, leaders and rulers and to put their trust in God. Then chapters 40 to 55, where we are this morning, the second major part of Isaiah, deals with God's promises to rescue and to redeem his people from the exile that was the punishment, the judgment, for the first 39 chapters. And then as we said last week, the third major section in Isaiah is chapters 56 to 66, and it deals with their return from exile to the land and the challenges they face there. Now, if last week's passage from Isaiah 64 was a prayer for God to act, as, as we said it was, then Isaiah 40 is God's answer to that prayer. So if 
Isaiah 64 is the prayer. Isaiah 40 is the answer to prayer. Not literally, of course, because the answer to the prayer comes 24 chapters before the prayer was actually prayed. Nevertheless, it is still true, theologically, it is still true in terms of intent and content. What God says through Isaiah chapter 40, in its fullest sense, is an answer to the prayer in Isaiah 64. There, as the people of Judah returned to the land, they discovered that things are not what they had hoped. God had made some incredible promises, but things in the land aren't there yet. And so they are frustrated. They are experiencing pain and tension and anxiety and uncertainty. So Isaiah prays, again, from 64 verses 1 and 2. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. And right off the bat, it seems like an answer to the prayer if we go to Isaiah 40. God seems to reply. Uh, Isaiah 41 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The answer, in a sense, is coming to Isaiah and the people of Judah even before they ask. That's the grace of God. The answer comes even before they ask. This is what God will do. The punishment of exile is over, and now it's time for God to comfort his people. And the basis for their comfort is that God is about to act, verses 3 and 4. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the, in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. Now, if you and I were the people of God in exile, and God was going to bring us a comforting word, we might hope and expect that the comforting word would be, I'm going to take you home now. And certainly that is still God's intention. However, the highway that's being talked about here and promised is a highway for God, not for them. It is a way for God to come to them, not for them to go home, at least not initially. But preparations must be made for this highway. Isaiah's poetic language exhorts Israel to prepare the way for the Lord to remove the obstacles of, and he does it in a poetic way, but I think this is what's going on, to remove the obstacles of sin and stubbornness and selfishness and shame and rebellion so that God may come to them and then deliver them from exile. And in a sense, friends, all of humanity who is without God is in a sense in exile from God. All of humanity. While God is always at work, even in the lives of people who do not yet know him, Until we come to know God, until we experience forgiveness and enter into the kingdom, we too are in exile from God. And we need God to rescue us. We need God to bring us home. We need God to come to us. We prepare a highway for God to come to us when we prepare our hearts and lives to receive him. And perhaps, speaking to some of you who are online worshiping with us, perhaps you are here taking part in worship this morning and you have never, you are in exile from God and maybe you're longing for God to come and bring you home. If you want to know more about what that means and how you do that, how you come into a relationship with Christ, just uh, send us a message, an email at prayer at ecclife.net. Prayer at ecclife.net. We'll get in touch with you. We need God to come to us and we need to prepare the way in our hearts and lives. And when God does come to us, this is how it will be. Verse 5. 
and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. If we go all the way back to Moses, probably one of the most favored people of all of the leaders that God had, we know that not even Moses was allowed to see God's glory. In Exodus 33, 18 through 20, Moses asked God to show him his glory. 33, 19, And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. You cannot see my glory. You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Now, if Moses saw God's glory, he would die. But now, Isaiah 40, when God comes to us, all flesh, all people, all people will see God's glory and live. Not just the Jewish people, not just the favored strong leaders, not just the saints, but all people, all flesh, will see the glory of God and they will live. And we can begin to get the hint, I hope, that while God is definitely talking about bringing His people back from exile in about 539 B.C., He is also promising something infinitely bigger. The puzzle is coming together nicely, and Jesus is the picture on the box. In and through Jesus, the words of Isaiah have a broader, deeper, richer meaning. Jesus says, I mean, Hebrews 1 says of Jesus that He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God's being. Elsewhere, Jesus himself says, look, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father God. All of us who see Jesus when he comes to us, all of us will see the glory of God, and it doesn't matter. We can be Jewish, we can be Greek, we can be slave, we can be free, we can be male, we can be female. We will all see the glory of God in the coming of Christ. God clears the way, makes the way, and becomes the way. How do we know this is going to happen? Isaiah says, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Period. And the word of the Lord endures. And then in the next few verses in Isaiah 40, Isaiah compares the enduring word of the Lord with the grass of the field, the flowers of the field, which metaphorically are human beings. A voice cries out, verses 6 through 8, And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. God has promised that he will come to his people and that when he does, we will all see his glory. We will all see God's goodness. The very nature of God will be revealed to us. Ultimately, of course, This will take place in the coming of Jesus, the one whose picture is on the puzzle box. And we can trust the word of the Lord. We can trust the word of the Lord because even when we and our faithfulness wither like the grass, even when we sin against God and fail God, the word of God does not fail us. The word of God does not fail us. The word of God endures. God's promises to his people down through history endure forever. God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. And this is good news. 
The word translated as gospel in the New Testament is the Greek word euangelion, from which we get our words evangelism and evangelical. It means good news. It was not originally a religious word. It was a word used to describe the role of a herald. Hark the herald angels sing. The word of a herald. Someone who ran through the towns and the villages proclaiming a message, perhaps on behalf of a new emperor who had ascended the throne. And the herald runs through and he proclaims this evangel, this gospel. He says, ah, you have a new ruler. Your old ruler has been conquered. A new ruler has ascended the throne. And that's the word that the biblical authors borrowed to describe the message they proclaimed. The good news, the gospel, a new ruler has now ascended the throne. We hear this as Isaiah 40 continues. Verse 9. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Here is your God. That's the good news. God will make a highway in the desert, in the wilderness, and he will come to you. This is good news. The gospel for the people of God in exile. But it's more than that. It's more than that. And we can see this best when we put the pieces together according to the picture of Jesus on the lid to the puzzle box. Not only do these words describe God's intentions for his people in exile in the 5th century B.C., they also describe God's intentions in the coming of Jesus more than 400 years later. In Christ, God will clear a way, God will make a way, and God will become the way for us. Scholar Barry Webb says of Isaiah's prophecy that the fact that this prophecy, uh, Isaiah's prophecy was uh, later understood to speak of Jesus and the coming of Jesus does not mean does not mean that these words from Isaiah 40 had no meaning at all until Jesus came. Not at all. Rather, they had a meaning then. They had a meaning centuries before Jesus came to the people in that context, to God's people in captivity. And they had a whole new meaning, a deeper meaning, a richer meaning, an ultimate meaning in the coming of Jesus. Barry Webb writes this. He says, quote, The gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of Isaiah transposed into a new, higher key. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of Isaiah 40, transposed into a new hierarchy. Now, I know that not all of us are musical or understand music theory, so I've asked Megan to come up on the platform to demonstrate for us what this musical metaphor means. Are you going to sing too, Sam? Do you want to sing? No, okay. So she's going to play a few bars of a song, and then she's going to modulate it up to a higher key. The first part she's playing is the good news according to Isaiah 40. The second is how Christ ultimately, ultimately fulfills, renews, and reinvigorates that good news in a higher key, a new key. See how that adds? If you could hear it, it goes just up a bit. It adds to the sound, adds a little hope to the sound. A bit more brightness, maybe. Now, just for fun, I'm going to stretch the metaphor a bit. Music can be written and composed in a minor key or a major key. And for me, a minor key sounds a little darker. It's beautiful, but it sounds a little darker. A major key sounds different. So maybe for the purposes of the illustration, we could say that in the birth, life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus, 
uh, it takes the minor key of Isaiah 40 and transposes it to the major key of the gospel of Christ. So maybe it's going to give us a chord in a minor key and it's going to give us a chord in a major key. Take it away. Thank you, Megan. <laughs> hopefully you can see. <laughs> so hopefully you can see how that works as well. That's kind of the way I see Isaiah 40. It is amazing. This is a beautiful passage of Scripture in its own right. In its own context. But when it is seen through the lens of Jesus, it is transposed to a hierarchy. It becomes infinitely more good, beautiful, and true than it was before. The good news of Isaiah 40, then, is that one day God will come to us in the person of our Messiah, our King Jesus, and He will lead us out of our self-imposed exile, the self-imposed exile of our sin and our shame. God will clear the way. God will make the way. God will become the way in Jesus Christ. Isaiah continues, verses 10 and 11. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and He rules with a mighty arm. See, His reward is with Him and His recompense accompanies Him. He tends His flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in His arms. He carries them close to His heart. He gently leads those who have young. I don't know if you could catch the transition that took place from verse 10 to verse 11. The modulation that took place. The strong and powerful one of verse 10 is transposed to the gentle shepherd in verse 11. The mighty ruling arm of verse 10 becomes the arm that carries us close to his heart in verse 11. Verse 10, I think some might say, mirrors the way many of us think of the God of the Old Testament as the God of power and might. Verse 11 gives us a picture of Jesus, the gentle shepherd, who is the exact representation of God's being in the New Testament. Verse 11 transposes our image of God to a higher, brighter, more hopeful key. So we can see how Isaiah's words are ultimately fulfilled, I hope, in the birth of Christ, the one who is truly the one who clears the way, makes the way, and is the way, the truth, and the life. In fact, Isaiah 40, portions of it, Isaiah 40 is used in all four of our New Testament Gospels, the stories of Jesus, all four of them, to describe the ministry and message of John the Baptist and the coming of Jesus. So, for instance, in Mark chapter 1, we read this. The beginning of the good news, that's the word gospel again, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. This is from Isaiah 40. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And when the Lord comes, he will give us his peace. This will be true in the fullest possible sense, of course, when Christ returns. And it is true every moment of every day, even now. Christ comes to us, if we will receive him, by his Spirit and in the presence of one another as our sisters and brothers in Christ. So as we, as we close this morning, I want to teach you a short ancient prayer. I'm going to modify it a little bit, but I want to teach it to you. And the prayer originally was in Aramaic, and the word was Maranatha. Maranatha. It simply means, Lord, come. Lord, come. It's the prayer the Israelites might have prayed while they were in exile. Lord, come. Aramaic is the language that Jesus spoke, we think. 
It's a prayer that people down through the ages have cried out as well. And it's a prayer that you and I can pray every day, slightly altering it. Lord Jesus, come. Lord Jesus, come. In the context of this second Sunday in Advent, where we have lit the candle of peace, let us quiet our hearts just for a moment here. Breathe slowly in and out. Close your eyes if you'd like to. Let's just kind of situate ourselves, quiet ourselves for a second or two. Breathing in slowly, bring it out slowly. And now as we breathe in slowly, let us say in our minds, Come, Lord Jesus. And as we breathe out, let us say, Be our peace. And let's keep it in the plural, because we're not just praying for ourselves, we're praying for all people. Breathe in on come, Lord Jesus, out on be our peace. Let's just do that for a few seconds. Come, Lord Jesus, be our peace. Lord, I pray that you would reintroduce yourself to those of us, Lord, who perhaps have forgotten how good and beautiful you are, how much we long and need your presence in our lives. I pray you would speak to those who have never known you, who long to know you, who long to be brought home. Lord, come and work in our hearts and lives, we pray. And now let us also respond to the good news this morning, that in Christ, God has cleared the way made the way, and become the way. Let us do that by taking part in this holy sacrament of communion together.